Hopefully we are there. Coming through? Yes. Praise God. Hallelujah. Something's working. <laughs> Not everything, but some things. Um, and praise God for that. On this day, um, we, uh, as uh, Carrie has mentioned, it's, uh, it's an important day. It's almost, uh, you can almost consider it a day of renewal. Because that's kind of what it is. In the, in the church calendar year, it's a time when we um, elect and uh, deacons and elders, Lord willing, and we're always dependent upon Him for that. So Lord willing, we will see. Um, here in Isaiah 48, um, as we go through, um, last week we kind of focused on the fact that um, G- that God had spoken to the people through Isaiah and how He Himself was attesting to the fact that we as His people, uh, Israel in, in specific, as His people, they really weren't worthy of anything but His judgment. And that's what He was talking about early on here. Um, in uh, uh, where we were at last week in our, uh, in our time in Isaiah. And so we're moving on from the fact that God, um, in verse 12, says, Listen to me, O Jacob. He presents this uh, uh, fleshly uh, people, Jacob, and then he refers to them in the spiritual sense, and he calls them Israel as well. And uh, then he says, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last also. And... He's introducing in the fact in, in, uh, of the fact that he is the first and the last. And as I said, and, and I will reiterate this week, um, if he is the first and the last of all creation, you should conclude the fact that if he's the first, that he had to be already in existence, right? Because he had to begin everything. And what comes from nothing? Nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. So it couldn't have been nothing. So he says, I am the first. Then he says, I'm also the last. When everything's all done and played out with, he says he will still continue. Essentially, he's introducing us to this idea of his eternality. He's eternal. He's this eternal person, this eternal personal uh, God, this God who is, who is a, uh, um, a being that is in many ways indescribable. You can't really fully um, comprehend who he is. And strangely enough, one of the, uh, um, one of the paradoxes of Christianity is, is this, is in one sense, you cannot put God in a box because he thinks outside of the box. And what we expect, you can't put him in that. But on the very other hand, and at the very same time, you have to keep him in a box. In other words, there's certain things that you you cannot assign to God that are not part of his attributes. Um, For instance, God is all-powerful, but he doesn't make squared circles, right? That's an oxymoron. That doesn't make sense. And so there's other ways. Um, God cannot lie, so you have to keep him in that box of he is truth. Um, God does as he pleases, And he really does. 
And so there's, there's certain ways that we must look at God. And this is what Isaiah is presenting to his people. In history, as I've said many times before, this is God looking forward 150 years or more. Um, and he's talking about, he's talked about their captivity where they were going to be held captive by Babylon, although the time hadn't come yet. And yet here he's talking about how he's going to free them. And it's to give his people hope. One of the things that we're going to uh, um, look at is uh, um, here in, in verse 13 where he says, Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand together. Again, he's talking about the fact that he's the creator. And as we've said earlier, um, unlike um, the idea of evolution, that's done away with when we read the book of Isaiah. And how do we know that? Well, God says, and we've read it before in the previous chapters, where God says, I have created the earth, and I created it to be inhabited. In other words, He made the earth so that it could be inhabited, and that was in, with, with uh, an immediate um, effect. It was going to happen like right now. So in six days, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he goes through the process and lets us know what he did on each one of those first six days. And then at the end of the six days, or towards the end of the six days, he does his crowning achievement, and that is to make man. He makes man out of the dust of the earth. And so the earth was always created to be inhabited, not just by animals and things and all these other creatures, and not just by plants, the fauna and flora. This is actually made for human beings. The image bearers of God, as Genesis tells us. And so God made it this way specifically in reminding His people that He is the Creator. He is the one who does all these things. And He talks about the past and how He's called out everything for His people. He says, these are the things that are going to happen. I wrote it down. Uh, a long time ago, and I've spoken it. And one of the things we're going to focus on is God says, I don't do this stuff in secret, unlike people say. He says, I let you know ahead of time. And what was the purpose of that? Because I know that you're idolaters, and you're going to try to give it credit to your other gods. He says, but they haven't spoken it, only I have. And I spoke it in the past, so you can't say that it was your God that's doing a new thing. He says, I'm the only one who will do a new thing. And when I do a new thing, I'll proclaim it. So here in Isaiah 48, verse 16, he then gives this command. Come near to me. Listen to this. So he commands his people to come near and to listen to him. There's another place in the New Testament where similar language is used. And it's called the transfiguration. And I spoke about this, I think, either last week or the week before. And Jesus is with Peter, John, and, uh, and they're up there on the mountain. And as they're there on the mountain, all of a sudden a light begins to emanate from Christ, from Jesus. And they're sitting there in amazement. And in one of the 
Gospels, it tells us that the light that was shining forth from Jesus, like where was this all of a sudden light source from? And one of the writers says, it was brighter than the sun. This light. And a lot of times we look at that and we give glory to God and rightfully we should. As did Peter. He says, hey, um, Isaiah and, uh, and uh, or Elijah and uh, um, Moses, uh, we should make uh, uh, tents for them up here, tabernacles, and, and we should just live here forever. And Jesus says, nope, nope, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not what this is about. And so the, the glory and the wonder of it is that light that was emanating from Jesus at the transfiguration. The, the wonder of it is not the fact that they got to see that glory, that, that shining light that they couldn't even look at. The wonder of it is this. That was just a tiny inkling, just a moment, just a blip on the screen. That was just a little ink blot of His glory. Right now, Jesus is the risen Lord. He is in His place at the right hand of the Father in His full glory. That glory that they saw on the mountain of the transfiguration, that glory that they saw is His existence now. He's in the fullness of His glory. As He pleaded with the Father in John chapter 17, as He prayed to Him, and He said, Let me... Let them see the glory that I had with you before the earth was. Jesus is saying this. And it's not at the time of the, the, the transfiguration, but it's another time when he was praying right before he was going to be slaughtered. Before he was going to be crucified. And that's what he pleaded with the Father for. He said, I want those that you have given me to see me in my glory. So that which they saw on the mountain of the transfiguration at that time is going to pale in comparison to what we will see when we see Jesus in His full glory. And so God is crying out to His people saying, come near to me and listen to this. It's as if God is saying, I have something to tell you. And when God says, I have something to tell you, He says, I've got something to tell you, you're going to listen. It's not just one of those things where he's pleading with people to come. He's saying, you listen, right? Today's message is, is uh, I've titled it, What Could Have Been? What Could Have Been? And one of the wonderful things about God, and God in His holiness, in His command of perfection, He has desires. And God's desire is for His people. And it's for them to prosper. And we're going to see that. And, and how many of us at, at, uh, at one point or another have looked back on our lives and go, what could have been? What if this or what if that, right? Sometimes we live life in a kind of regret. What if something, what, what could have been if I'd only this or that? And this will be God speaking in this manner. 
Um, Isaiah or Israel here in chapter 48 is bidden to come and listen. God in his eternal love for his people laments through the prophet on behalf of his people. That which could have been. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in Deuteronomy because it's God speaking about his people. He says in verse 16, come near to me, listen to this, from the first I have not spoken in secret. Just like I said earlier, it's not that he's hiding things. We think that God um, often is just hiding things from us, but he's speaking clearly. He's speaking loudly. And as the psalmist says in, in Psalms, he says, the heavens have declared the glory of God. It's a past tense uh, passage. And it says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Everything that we see, I was speaking about this a little bit ago during the praise time. Uh, on the way home, um, you get to drive through those large expanses where there's, there's uh, between here and Idaho, where there's no lights. There's no traffic lights, there's no city lights, there's no lights. It's just dark. If you wander out there in the desert just a little bit too far, you'll get lost because you can't see where you're going. But you don't get lost because you've lost your way. You can get lost in the wonder of it all, in the splendor of it all. You look up and you see the stars. And it was like when I was getting, uh, getting close to the place that I grew up in, I looked over and I wanted to pull over and stop and look because it was like I, I, I grew up in a small town where you don't have all the lights like we have here. And so you can see the sky at night. And I remember commenting to, to the Lord saying, Lord, it's almost like the stars are touching, touching the, the earth. They're so low, and I don't remember, you know, it's just like, wow, that's, I don't get to see that every day anymore. And it was just amazing just to be able to watch and see the, the wonder and the glory of, of the heavens proclaiming the glory of God. Unfortunately, the product of their disbelief, their unbelief, their adulterating worship with multiple gods and idolatrous practices... Um, are going to pay a consequence. It's a sad reminder that what God states goes. And by that I mean uh, God does promise and state some pretty good and positive things. But he also states some very, um, very condemning things at the same time. And that's just kind of how God works. What he promises is, is fact in reality that it's really going to happen in the future, for the most part. Or past, he does not, he cannot lie about what he has promised. So it's going to happen. And we've seen that over and over again, where he promises something and it happens. And we've seen it played out in parts of Isaiah. He says, from the first I have not spoken in secret. In other words, I don't hide what I'm saying. From the time I, it took place, I was there. Sometimes when we go through tough times in life and things happen and we don't know why, uh, people are often quoting this statement. Well, where was God? Where was God when? You can fill in the blank. And the answer is He was right there. I've heard a lot of people when they are 
severely abused and they grow up and they're adults and they have this animosity, understandably so. They have this um, visceral reaction to the idea of God, about God being a good God. If God is a good God, why did He allow this to happen to me? It's like, I don't know. But I do know this. He was there suffering with you. That's what the Bible says. He's there suffering with you. He's allowing it, but He's giving you also the strength to get through it. And as I've said, for those of us who are believers who have had that kind of a background, God can use the most horrific things in order to help somebody else heal. He can use that damage that somebody else did, not that God did, but that somebody else, another human being did, who preyed upon you perhaps, He can use that to heal somebody else. He can use that to let somebody know you can get through this. You can put it past you. You can leave it back there. And that's not who you are anymore when you are in Christ. The promise is you will be new. You will be made new. He'll make you new. And He'll change you. He'll change who you are. He says, from the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me in His Spirit. The Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Two persons there speaking of. Is this the prophet? Listen to what one of the commentaries says. Christ appears to be speaking in this verse. As commonly translated, He reveals that His Spirit inspired the prophets. And that He came into the world, sent by the Father and the Spirit. Salvation is the work of the triune God. The Father sends the Son. The Spirit applies that salvation to us. And He works the work of sanctification in us. You have the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working continually together in harmony to save people, to save the unsavable, to save the irredeemable, to save the unlovable, to save the most wretched amongst us, one of which is standing up here, some of which are sitting out there, some of which are out there in the ether world. But God saves because that's what He sent Jesus for. Just like the song we sang a little bit ago, I am redeemed. When we come to know Christ, He changes us and He saves us. He doesn't keep us stringing along like a, a carrot on a stick out in front of us that we can never grab onto. Salvation is promised to those who believe by faith. It's assured. Why? Because it's not something that you do. It's not something that you uh, have to go through this process. It's not something that you have to work towards. It's not something that, that you do in and of yourself. It's something that Christ did on the cross. He died on the cross to save, to die for our sin, to pay for that. That's what he died for. 
But he didn't stay dead. Hallelujah. Because Christ is risen. He has. He is the risen Lord. And we get to worship a risen Christ. We get to worship a risen Lord. And we will one day see that risen Lord coming in the clouds with all His power and all His might and all His glory and all the wonder and all the majesty and all of the, 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 the host that will be with Him. It will be terrifying to His enemies. But to us it will be pure glory. And hallelujah. And no more by and by. It will be realized. He says in verse 17, back in Isaiah 48, he says, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh, your God. I'm the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. God reveals a compassionate longing for His people to find their peace in living for Him. As Dante said, in His will is our peace. You see, when we're doing His will, and we know that we're doing His will, we're at peace. We're at perfect peace. We're in, we have that peace that surpasses all understanding. That which only God can supply because we are in His will, when we are in His will. But these are the words of the living God. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. In other words, all that you're suffering, you wouldn't have had to suffer. It wasn't necessary. But this is the path that you chose. In Deuteronomy, if you remember, and I have to uh, jokingly say it's, it's, it's even hard for me to say Deuteronomy sometimes, thanks to Matt, because that stupid thing that he says. And, uh, yeah, I wish you would. <laughs> yeah. I and it just, it just sticks with you. It just kind of, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's Deuteronomy. Um, in Deuteronomy, um, one of the things that, that we see, uh, what, is, what is God referring to here? When he says, you know, it, it could have been different. You could have had, your, your righteousness would have been like the waves, and, and you could have prospered in all these things. Well, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 28 through 30, this is what God has said in Deuteronomy. And this is where, um, in Deuteronomy, it's, it's early on. Um, God has not come to that place in the, in the book of Deuteronomy where um, God tells Moses to write down the blessings of, for those who follow him. And specifically, there's 13 of them, or 11 of them. 11 of them, I think there is. 11 specific things that God says, this is what I'll do if... You will follow me if you will keep my commandments, if you do them. And later on in that, that chapter in Deuteronomy, he says in another place, but if you don't, 
Here are the curses that will come at you. And it's three times the amount of curses as opposed to the blessings. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28, it reads as following, The Lord heard the voice of the words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, this is, he's referring to Moses. Moses is the me here. I have heard the voice of the words of the people, this people, which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. But words are different than actions. And speaking something doesn't necessarily mean that you'll do it. Listen to the word and the heart of God. He says here in verse 29 of Deuteronomy 5, Oh, that they had such a heart in them to do what they said that they would do. That they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go say to them, return to your tents. So you hear that compassion of God. He, he desires for His people to be obedient. To be real with Him. To be anything but fake. To be real with God. And that's what He desires for His people. In Deuteronomy 32, way after this, along, a little bit of time has passed now in Deuteronomy, and in, verse, in chapter 32, verses 28 and 29, this is what God says about them. He says, For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. They had God to counsel with. He would have listened to them and would have told them directly. But he says they're a nation lacking in counsel. And there is no understanding in them. And then listen, he says again in verse 29, Would that they were wise and that they understood this, that they would discern their future. It's like they can't even understand that this is about their future. And I want to say to you that that's the word of God speaking to us. There is a future that He has for us. For those of us who are His, what is the future going to be? Is the future going to be obedience and the fear of the Lord? Is it going to be following after God? Or is it going to be going after the worldly things? Going after things that the world offers you? That's the question that you have to answer. And so God here says, If only they had paid attention to my commandments, back in verse 18 in chapter 48. The well, then your well-being would have been like a river. And so he's not talking about um, these flash flood rivers that you see on the news all the time. Or every once in a while, I should say. He's talking about a river that is like, um, like the river that I grew up around. The Snake River. It's been a river for a long time. It's a big wide river. And it's beautiful. And he says, your well-being would have been like that. A non-stop, ever-flowing, always full well-being. But instead, it's dried up. It's gone. 
In verse 19, he says, Your descendants would have been like the sand, and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Again, God looking forward, and remember that when they come out of Babylon, years in the future, 150 years plus, as we're going through the Old Testament and we're in the book of Numbers, we talked a little bit about the numbers of the people that were out there in the wilderness. And the men, just the men, the fighting men, the men who could go to war from age 20, it doesn't say how old, we're guessing probably 45 to 50 at the, at the max. There were 600,000 plus of the men that were out there in the wilderness. That's not a little bit of men. That's a lot of fighting men. And that didn't include their wives. Who knows how many of them had wives? At 20 years old, you probably should have been married already and begin to produce some progeny. But it doesn't include the women. And it doesn't include the children. If you think about that 600,000 plus their wives, you're doubled already if every one of them were married. And if every one of the families had children, you're talking about a lot of people out there. And so unlike that, when they are finally going to be set free from Babylon, it's just going to be a remnant, just a small portion. They're no longer going to be like the sands of the sea like the sands of the, of the, uh, the beaches and all that stuff. So it's it's going to be just a small remnant now. And he says, but if you would have just done what you said you were going to do, you would have never been cut off. None of this would have happened. And this is, if you remember from Genesis 12, this is the promise that God made to Abraham. And he made it to Abraham saying, when Abraham believed him and said, okay, all right, because Abraham was an old dude. He was an old codger when God said, I'm, I'm going to give you a son. And at first, Abraham's like, what? I'm old. My wife is old. How's this going to happen? I mean, he was in his 70s. And it wasn't until 20... Five years later, he was about 75, and about 25 years later, he finally has a son. You do the math. That's an old dude, especially in our time. And his wife was just 10 years younger than him. So she's not a spring chicken. But God supernaturally preserved them and caused them to produce. And this was the promise that he made to them, that he would make them like the sands that he would make them like that. That was one of the things that God promised Abraham if he would just follow and believe. So verse 20 and 21, he says, Go forth, and here's his proclamation to his people. And what I want you to focus on here is this is God declaring what will happen. This is God telling his people, you have hope. Here's what's going to happen. He says, in verse 20, go forth from Babylon. Your captivity is going to be over. 
flee from the Chaldeans. And declare with a sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. God is in the business of redeeming, of redemption. That's what redemption is all about. He saves you. In this case, it was from their captivity from another people, the Babylonians. And he says, go free, shout it. When you're free, shout it to the ends of the earth. Sing the song of Yahweh, that the Lord, Yahweh, has redeemed His servant Jacob. And just like Egypt was a picture and a symbol of sin, as we are in the world in our natural state, we're slaves to that. They were slaves... They were held captive. And that's what sin does. It holds us captive. It's a dangerous idea for Christians to grab onto the idea of addiction. Because when you grab onto the idea of addiction, you're giving it power over you. And as a Christian, we should never do that. Because Christ came to set us free. Right? And this is one of the things that we should be contemplating always. When we struggle with something, we struggle with something because we give ourselves over to it. But as believers, it doesn't have power over us unless we give it some. You have the power to say no now. And that's the wonderful, uh, one of the wonderful outworkings of redemption. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he gives you the power to say no. Like, nah, I'm not interested in that. And you just keep on walking. You don't have to stay there anymore. In the past, you would just like, okay. And just give in and follow along. And now you can go, nah, I'm not interested. And you can walk the other direction. Or as, as it says uh, concerning sexual immorality, flee. You know, get the pictures in the cartoons where the animal starts running, you see it, and they're winding their leg, and they take off. That's the idea. Get out of there. Be like the roadrunner. Beep, beep, gone. Get out of there. God gives us the power to do that in His Holy Spirit when we receive Christ. And He says, sing this song, say this, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst... When he led them through the deserts, which we'll cover in uh, the book of Numbers a little bit more, he made the water flow out of the rock. And Paul talks about this in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians. I believe it's 1 Corinthians. And he says this. He says about the people that were wandering in the desert, he said that a rock followed them. Well, that's a weird idea. And he says, that rock which followed them, and which gave them water, and which fed them, was Christ. And when we read the account that we have in, in the Old Testament of the people wandering around in the desert, it was a literal rock that God split open, 
And then water just began flowing out of it. If you split open a rock, water doesn't flow out of it. You might find some cool fossils and stuff like that. You might find a, a, full, a cool crystal or something like that. But you don't have waters that just flow out of a rock that is split. And Paul says this was a spiritual rock. And that spiritual rock was Christ. So Paul, in his writings, is saying, I believe what the Bible says. The Bible says that this happened, so I'm going to believe it. And he says that rock was Christ. He's the one who gives the living water. And it flows from that rock. He's the one who gives the bread of life. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And God says, Say this, the Lord has redeemed his servant. They did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made the water flow out of the rock for them, and he split the rock, and the water gushed forth. The prophet remembers the exodus from Egypt and how God provided for his people. You know what's uh, kind of uh, the, the flip side of everything that God is promising his people? He's promising he's going to set them free. In a sense, he's saying, I did it before, I'll do it again. I'll provide for you that living water. I'll provide for you that sustenance that you need. I will do this. Verse 22 has a whole different connotation to it. Verse 22, he says something entirely different. In verse 22 of Isaiah 48, he says, There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. In other words, they're never going to have peace. It's common in this area that we live in, when you repeat this, and I've done it several times, and in talking with certain people, certain groups, I say there's no rest for the wicked. To which they retort, and the saints have no need. It's like, no. Actually, that's exactly why Christ redeemed us, so that we could enter into that rest. We need that rest. That rest is what gives us assurance. That rest says, you don't have to keep on doing and doing and doing some more and doing that and doing this and keep on doing and doing and doing so that you can find yourself right before God. That is not what it is about. That's what many of us think. That, oh, if I just keep on doing this, God will be all right with me. No. God is all right with you because you believe that His Son is enough. That the work on the cross is enough. That that eternal gospel that was spoken of before the foundations of the world, Christ was already, he was already um, recruited, if you will, and recruited himself to come and be God incarnate and to live a life in that Middle Eastern area, the Holy Land, to live a life that we could never live, 
a life of perfection before a holy God and His angels. And because of that, He was able to fulfill all of the law. And because of that, He was worthy to step on that cross, to carry that cross. And some people say, well, that's not fair. We have a whole religion that says, another man cannot pay for another man's sin. Well, that's true. Unless it's the God-man who's already lived a perfect life and he's laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He offered it up. He said, I'm willing to pay that price. You remember um, in a few chapters ago, a few months ago, um, I touched on where uh, the, in the New Testament, Jesus had told his disciples many times, I've got to go up to Jerusalem. And when I get there, they're going to get a hold of me. And I'm paraphrasing. And they're going to treat me badly. They're going to beat me. And they're going to condemn me. And they're going to put me on a cross. I'm going there to die. And the disciples' reaction was like, hey, who's going to be, the, the, be able to sit on the right hand and the left hand? It was... Whew. And in another place, it's like, Peter says, may it never be. Not while I'm on watch. To which Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. And that's on the heels of him saying, well, who do people say that I am? And they had all these, well, some people say Elijah. Some people say the prophet. Some people say this other one. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And I think that's the most important question that we will ever answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? I hear it all the time when I'm watching and seeing different things on different feeds in different social sites. And it's astounding the blasphemy that goes on. And people don't realize that Jesus is God, the Son, from all eternity. And you still hear people today that say, well, he was just a good teacher. He was a good moral standing upright guy. He was just a man. It's like, well, you haven't really thought that through, have you? <laughs> because if you think it through, the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did... You can't go out there and heal somebody that's in a wheelchair. See, in, 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 if Jesus and... Um, I'm trying to think of the... Uh, <clears throat> who was the uh, scientist that was the, uh, the physics that was in the wheelchair? Hawking. If you put... Jesus and Hawking together at the same time, and if Jesus wanted to heal him, he would have healed him whole. 
But Hawking mocked the idea of God. He mocked at the idea of Jesus being God the Son. And he ended up where he was at. Jesus could do things and say things that nobody else could pull off. Although I did uh, watch a video that was very blasphemous. It was beyond heretic, heretical. There's a group in Ohio that are claiming to be the new apostles. And they can write scripture. I don't remember the group. I have to look at it up. It's, it's a new it's a group. It's another cult that has popped up. And they dress kind of like, almost like old style. You see them in the movies. They have the black jackets on, the black shirt, and the little white collar with the, you know, little white square that's, you know. And it's this group. And actually they claim that their leader... He can take away your forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching it yesterday, uh, the day before, I think, and it was like, what is this nonsense? And there's people that buy into it. There's people who believe that kind of stuff. Um, the point here, guys, is that God has spoken, and He says, these are the way. There's no peace for the wicked. There is no peace. The saints do need rest. In fact, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, You want rest? You've got to come to Him. He's the only place where you can find rest. He's the only one in whom you will find rest and peace. Of this time in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, and concerning the, the, the there's no peace for the wicked, we're not talking about just on their time on the earth. And you really think about it. The wicked, what are they doing? They're always scheming. Always trying to get away with things. The kindness of the wicked is cruel. It's cruelty. And so they're always looking over their shoulder, aren't they? Because they know that they're always up to something. And some of them, their consciences have become seared. But they're still always looking over their shoulder because they know that they're in the wrong. There is no rest for the wicked. In conjunction with what is written here in these verses here in Isaiah 48, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. He says, For finding fault with him, he says, Behold, days are coming, says Yahweh, or the Lord, Kurias, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. God just professed that. 
if they would have only listened and done what they said they were going to do. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Yeah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. Does it sound like God saying, if you let me? No. He says, I will. I will, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen. And everyone his brother saying, know the Lord. For all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them. That's why I say there's no such thing as an atheist. There's only anti-theists. According to scriptures like this. Where God says, I'm going to put this knowledge of myself in everyone. And the Bible attests to that. We all know that there is a God. We all know that there is someone that we will answer to on the other side of this life. And this just confirms that. He says, all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Then he says in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Yeah. I should have us dancing right there where you're at. Well, that's, that's way before Hebrews. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's in yeah. Exactly. I will be merciful to their iniquities. That is God's compassion. I know you can't do it. Even if you want to, I know you can't. I will forgive you. But it's not a universal salvation, y'all. It's not that everyone's going to be saved. There's still those who will reject it. But he says, I will be merciful to your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God because he has chosen to do this. He chooses to do this. It's a volitional act. It's within his character to do so. And in doing so, He justifies. He justifies us. That means it's a legal term. In the courts of God in heaven, it's a legal thing. He says, I'll justify and forgive you. Just believe me. Just trust in me. And then He says in verse 13 of Hebrews, when He said a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete. That's why we say we're not here trying to fulfill the law. The law has been fulfilled. But we desire holiness. We should desire holiness if we are His. We should desire righteousness if we are His. Because He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, it is ready to disappear. Bye-bye. Yeah. And so we enter into a time of grace where God, in His grace, He saves those whom He will, and He forgives whom He will. And He forgives for all time. Because He says, I won't remember your sin anymore. That's a choice. Does it mean that God's forgotten? Does it mean that God can't remember? He just says, I'm not going to keep it in front of me. 
Sometimes we hold on to unforgiveness. Sometimes we need, um, we have issues with sometimes family members, sometimes old friends, sometimes old work peop, uh, workmates. Um, we have to get to that place of forgiveness. We have to get to that place of letting it go. And when I say letting it go, I mean letting it go, leaving it behind, choosing to not remember it anymore. There's nothing wrong with that. Even if that person doesn't admit that they did anything wrong. It's incumbent upon the believer to be forgiving in the same measure that God has forgiven you. If he has forgiven you, to what measure has he done so? And if so, we should forgive everyone else. It's a hard thing to swallow because in our carnal mind, we're like, but you don't know what was done to me. But you don't know the circumstances. God's like, but I don't care. Forgive. This is ultimately what God does. He longs for His people to be holy. He longs for His people to be loving. He longs for His people to be made right with Him. To be a people of faith. To be a people filled with the Holy Spirit. And to go forth and to preach the gospel in power. I hope that's your desire. That's the desire that I have for me and for you. That you would. And that when you share the gospel, you would quickly throw up a flare. God, empower me. Give me that power. I want to see somebody saved. I want to see somebody forego their captivity. I want to see somebody set free. Would you do that? He does. He does that. And you can pray with somebody to receive Christ. Have you received Him? Do you know Him? Receive Him today by faith. It's the only way that you can come to God, by faith. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. And it's not of works, lest man should boast. Nobody's going to go before God and say, man, you owe me. You owe me big time. <laughs> to which God would laugh and scoff. You get this guy, get this clown out of here. It's a serious matter. Everyone will bow before God. Everyone will answer to him. Do you know him? Do you have you trusted in him? Receive him. Receive him. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, we praise you, we bless you for your word. We thank you, um, Lord, because you are the one who has given us this, the bread of life, the words that proceed out of your mouth. And I thank you that we can have them and that we can dine on them, that we can feast on them, and that you have given us abundantly more than we could think or imagine. Lord, thank you. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus above all things who secured salvation by the work that he did on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you that Christ was crucified and that he was buried. But we serve a risen Lord. We serve a resurrected Lord. Thank you. Thank you. 
Lord, I pray that you would just have your way, that you would save as only you can, for your name's sake and for your glory's sake. Thank you for everything. In Jesus' holy name, amen.